0: All right, so we're uh, you might know what we're at. What's the passage called? The Sermon on them out. Good, guys, good job. I think that's the best quiz we've ever done. Normally it's like stairs, you know. And I get that you have uh Saturday through uh Friday before you before you come back in here and uh there's a lot that happens in between all that, but um I'm glad that you passed your first quiz. So Generally, you've been failing. uh, It's just what I'm saying. (laughs) Uh, But this is a good. This is a good week. So, Sermon on the Mount. All right, let's try to dig a little deeper into that. Let's try to go for something beyond the title, uh, and and let's uh, let's retain some real good stuff this morning. So, I'm going to give you a a refresher because I want to go a little bit further um, in a refresher uh, into the topic that we that we introduced last week. Now. When we read in the Sermon on the Mount in Je- in Matthew chapter four, uh, Jesus his his ministry is beginning to explode. Right uh, there's there's people that have heard of what he's doing, and it says uh, it uses this word that the multitudes are following him. Why? Because he's healing the sick. Right those that are those that are demon possessed, he's cleansing them. Those that are that have ailments, he's healing them. Right, he's speaking truth. He's speaking in a way that, that people have never really heard before. He comes with this uh, with this authority. Right, we we even read back when he was a kid and he was in he was in the temple. And he was discussing the scriptures. It says that he spoke with an authority that they'd never heard before, right? So, so he's he's kind of attracted this attention, and because of that, uh, the, the multitudes are following him. Well, before the Sermon on the Mount, uh, it says that because the multitudes are following him, he he retreated to uh, to this uh, to this hill, right? He retreated to this uh, to this mountain, if you will, but but more so a hill. And he sa- it says he called his disciples to him, right? So he sees the multitudes, but what he's going to say is not for the multitudes. I think a lot of times we have that in our mind, that Jesus speaks his Sermon on the Mount and he stands and he proclaims to the thousands and to, to however many are gathered on this mountain, the principles of the Sermon on the Mount, but this is not true. The multitudes are what caused him to withdraw to a quieter place away from the multitudes and then he brought his disciples to himself because he had to speak uh, something into their lives that only they would understand. Why is that? Because they are the ones that have been given the the mandate, the call to what? Follow me, right? We read this in in the accounts of all the disciples that Jesus comes to him. he speaks very, very, very plainly. He says, follow me. And I told you that the the highest honor that we could receive is is not that we've been forgiven of our sins, not not that... um, that even even the uh, what God would have us do, what, you know, whether that be uh, some of you do you know mission work or uh, you, you know you you read your Bible fifty times a day or you know your your prayer life is astounding, right? It's, all these things are are great things. But the honor of our lives is the fact that Jesus would look at us and say, "Follow me." Can you, can you imagine what, what it would be like if the, uh, and, and I don't care about your political affiliation, but if the president walked in the room and said, I need you to do something with me, right? You, I mean, even if you didn't vote for him, he'd be like, yes, <laughs> the president loves me. See, it's a high honor because of the position of the president, right? It's a high honor to us to be called by Jesus because the position of Jesus. Because he is high and lifted up. He sits at the right hand of the Father, right? This is, this is a tremendous thing for Jesus to look at us and to call us into his ministry, to say to us, follow me. And so this, what follows in the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew chapter five through seven, what follows is, is four disciples, it is for people who have chosen to walk with Jesus, who have received the call, follow me. Notice it's Jesus that comes calling. It's Jesus that comes and says, follow me. And the disciples have to, have to, uh, have to lay down everything and follow him. So this is who the Sermon on the Mount is for. It's important that we know this because this is, uh, this is salvation. Now, I've, I've said in here before so many times uh, that salvation is not praying a prayer. Salvation is, is not uh, walking an aisle. Salvation is not getting emotional at the altar. Salvation is believing in Jesus to the point of repentance and following him, right? You can't, because to, if we just use this word believe, which, I, which is absolutely in the scriptures, if we just use the word believe to salvation, we got to unpack that further. What does that mean? If to believe Jesus for salvation is to believe that your life is, is worth nothing absent his, that he is the one that is, that is the author of life and has given you life. And in order to walk in life, you have to walk in the call of Jesus, which says to follow me. You've got to die to live, right? There is, there is, there is no salvation apart from your own death. And that's a hard thing for us to hear because some of us have held our uh, identity and our salvation in, well, I prayed a prayer. Well, there's nothing wrong with praying a prayer, uh, but that that prayer has to fast to follow your death right saying words doesn't doesn't save us dying saves us because we climb up on the cross and die with him that we might be raised up with him right he says to nicodemus listen you can't enter the kingdom unless you're born again and he's going wait how do i how do i do that do i have to get back in my mother's womb and be born again and he says, no, 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 no. you're not understanding. You've got to be born again. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. So we have to, we have to die, be born again. This is salvation. You understand? It comes when we believe in this word repentance, which just means to turn, right? But do you see, you see the, the profound truth in repentance? To turn. Well, to turn from what? To turn from the bad things I do? no. To turn from my old life, to turn from my old man, to turn from the thing which has brought me death, and walk in new life given by Jesus. Right? This is salvation, and we've cheapened salvation to the point that discipleship is also cheap. It doesn't require much. If all you got to do is say a few words, uh, then the life after is going to be as cheap as the words. That makes sense. I'm not. I don't. I'm not saying that for you to get on shaky ground, but, but. You you should know that you've died. That's a that's a moment you'd probably remember, right? Have uh, if you, if you guys ever heard of David Platt? He he uses this example, uh, which I think is, is kind of humorous. But uh, he uses this example where he says that um, he, he that he's supposed to meet this guy at a restaurant, and uh, the guy's late. And he's going, okay, well, why you know why is he late? The guy walks in and. Um, and he says hey, man sorry i I'm late i I pulled over on the side of the road, I had a flat, and I was fixing my flat and uh and I stepped out in the road and an 18 wheeler hit me and uh so i'm just I'm running a little bit behind and this isn't a true story. this is an example, right okay, so some of you are like, What happened <laughs> uh and he 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 says wouldn't it wouldn't it be strange if that were the story and the guy didn't look any different, right?" Wouldn't it, wouldn't it be strange if the guy just, hey, man, just showed up late. Sorry, I just got hit by an 18-wheeler, right? It's like you'd look a little different. Your life would be slightly altered if that was the case. And, and what I'm saying to us is uh, that I think our discipleship process is cheap because our salvation was cheap. If all it is is words, uh, it's not salvation, and that's, but that's why the, the, uh, the lack of, uh, of life follows, right? Does somebody, is everybody okay? You guys Okay. So what I'm saying is that if, if truly salvation exists, that if truly you die, this is, a, this is a significant moment in your life. If truly you die and are raised to life, this is a significant, significant moment in your life, uh, and you look different after, right? And that's the call to discipleship. Jesus is saying, these guys, look, this, you'll understand the paradigm of the kingdom if you've, if you've completely uh, sold your life down the river and to follow me. If you've died and now are alive again, then you will understand the paradigm in the kingdom. And we look at the paradigm of the Sermon on the Mount, and we go, well, it's a good set of behaviors and rules, but it's not. If you look at the Sermon on the Mount and you try to follow it by its rules and regulations, you will end up broke and frustrated because it's not a new set of behaviors. It's it's a shift in, uh, it's a paradigm shift. It's a new way of seeing uh, the world around you because... You've been brought into a new reality, which is life in the kingdom. Does that make sense? Jesus is giving you the very eyes that you need to see uh, the world that you now exist in when you're saved, right? You guys okay? So I wanted to, I wanted to explore that a little more because it's, it's a serious thing. If all we do is look at the Sermon on the Mount as behavior modification, we're not going to get it. Jesus is describing a shift in the way we function on the earth because we live in a new place. Somebody go to Colossians chapter 1. I'm gonna make you read because you look a little sleepy. Is the rain doing that to us? Okay, it's fair. It's okay. <laughs> Thank you for being honest. Colossians chapter one, read verse thirteen and fourteen. Somebody, just whenever you get. There. He has delivered us from the of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, and forgiveness. Of sin. All right. So there's a shift in place, right? I've taught this probably. Uh, four or five times, and uh, you guys are probably sick of it, but there's there's a shift from where we existed to where we now exist. He transfers us from the kingdom of darkness, right, with all of its rules and regulations, to the kingdom of his beloved son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. So the Sermon on the Mount is a lifestyle for that person which is Walking in the kingdom. Does that make sense? The Sermon on the Mount doesn't make sense in the domain of darkness. The cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, right? It makes sense. It's a shift when we are existing in the kingdom, all right? Uh, In Matthew uh, chapter 8, just a little bit after the Sermon on the Mount, we're in Matthew chapter 5 most of the day, so you can uh, kind of get there. But in Matthew chapter 8, in verse 18, he says uh, and Jesus saw a great multitudes came uh, about him he gave another command to depart to the other side and a certain scribe came and said to him teacher i will follow you wherever you go and Jesus said to him foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests but the son of man has nowhere to lay his head and another one of his disciples said to him lord let me go first and bury my father and Jesus said to him follow me and let the dead bury their own dead right so is this just is this just behavior modification Oh, this guy's like, man, I'll follow you. That sounds like a cool thing to sign up for, right? You got like a lot of people hanging out with you and wanting to be around you. This seems like a pretty sweet gig, okay? So I'll follow you. And he says, well, you're gonna have to lose you. There's no home. I have nowhere to lay my head. I am not of this earth. You're gonna follow me? That's the reality of your life. And so the other guy says, man, I'll do it. Just let me take care of some things. Let me, I mean, this is extreme, right? It seems kind of uh, heartless of Jesus, right? The guy says, let me go bury my father. Jesus says, let the dead bury their dead, right? Follow me. It's a complete release and removal from the old life to follow him. It's an extreme call. Um, you, go, you guys okay? I'm not trying to beat you up this morning. You, you look a little beat up. You okay? All right. Whew. It's going to be a long morning, guys. <laughs> All right, so let's go into chapter 5. Uh, chapter 5 we we read and seeing the multitudes he went up on a mountain he was seated with his disciples uh, and they came to him he opened his mouth and taught them saying so here it begins and this is a precious precious portion of scripture just kind of open your bible the next few pages look at how much red there is just continuous red that beautiful this this kind of this this begins the the longest string of red letters that we have in the scriptures, and it's a discussion to who disciples, right? This is something we ought to take extremely, extremely seriously, and here's how he starts, so uh there's lots of momentum here i I just love it uh, but he says uh, he opened his mouth and taught them saying, in verse three it says Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So what I want to do for the next, we're, going to, we're studying this for this month. Uh, I'd like to study it for a full semester, um, but we're not, we're not going to do that. Um, so what we're going to look at is, we're going to, today we're going to look at a few of the Beatitudes. There's eight things that Jesus says um, that, that are considered the, the Beatitudes. Um, and then uh, next week, we're going to look at uh, the end of the Beatitudes. We're going to look at the reward system in the kingdom, okay? He talks about rewards here in this passage, and we're going to talk about what, is, what does it look like, for, what do rewards look like for, for a follower of Jesus? What do we set our eyes on? What is our treasure? Uh, and then uh, I'm going to kind of wrap it all up with where we started that this is uh, this is to be a lifestyle. So all these things are covered in the Sermon on the Mount. you got to understand this would... Again, a semester's not enough. I would really like to go through this verse by verse. We, we just don't have time, and uh, but I want to try to paint a broad picture, and you, you go back and uh, and continue to study. But the very first thing that Jesus says, so we're going to start with just a few of these, uh, of the Beatitudes. I think we may just do two, but um, the very first thing he says, so he starts the discussion. It's not it's not uh, coincidence. Jesus didn't have just eight in his pocket and reach in and like, okay, let's see whichever one comes out is what I'm going to... Uh, what I'm going to say first, right? This isn't random. This is very, very structured and, uh, and very ordered. And he starts with this statement. that says, uh, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Remember, this is a shift, a paradigm shift. This is the way that we see, a new way that we see life, a new way that we walk on the earth as citizens and members of the kingdom of heaven. And he says, blessed are you if you're poor in spirit because yours is the kingdom of heaven. So what does the whole thing start with? The whole thing starts with the thing that it already started with. You've got to be totally uh, emptied and deprived of yourself. Blessed are those who are poor in spirit. What does that mean? That there is nothing in me that is anything good. That I recognize as a, as a disciple of Jesus, that I look at myself and I recognize the inadequacy of the person that I am absent Christ. do we do this it's simple it's it's not a lot he he doesn't he doesn't speak at length and he doesn't offer any explanation he says you must be poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of god and i i think that this is a lot of the reason that we are very works oriented that we are very checklist oriented right we whatever i whatever i do is what's really important is because we have missed what he said here Jesus starts the discussion with his disciples by saying, you are broke and useless, absent me. To walk in the kingdom, you must be completely aware of your depravity. You must be completely aware of all that you are not because walking in the kingdom is a recognition that you are not, but I am. See, we don't understand things like abide in him if we don't know that by ourselves we're useless. Does that make sense? We're not going to understand the context of the walk with Jesus when he says things, you got to be perfect as I'm perfect. If we don't know that we're broke absent him, does this, this, this uh, request for us to be perfect and holy as he is holy, it's going to look a lot like, all right, man, what do I got to do? What do I got to do in order to be perfect as Jesus was perfect? It's going to be a daunting list unless we're poor in spirit. Because the immediate thing that this brings, right? You understand where this is going? Immediately when Jesus says, you've got to be poor in spirit for yours is the kingdom, is it makes way for the life of Jesus to be our life. Because if you're going to say, look, I am, I am void of any uselessness. If I look at myself, Kirstie, if you took an examination of you and you recognize that within me it is not possible for me to live the life that Jesus has called me to live, what as a disciple of Jesus are you immediately going to do? I gotta trust something else for my life. If if this is what Jesus has called me to do and then he just says, but you can't do it, then I gotta know that some other miraculous, supernatural filling is gonna have to do it in me. And it shifts our perspective from what am I gonna do in order to accomplish things for God. See, that's not in the scriptures. We sing that and we preach that and we celebrate. Who's living their life for God? Yeah, you know, right? That's not in the Scriptures. Die is in the Scriptures. Abide is in the Scriptures. Be poor in spirit is in the Scriptures. We do nothing for Him. He does all things in and through us. And if the disciple of Jesus doesn't very first, before anything else, understand that I am poor in spirit, and it is healthy and good for me to stay there. This isn't like, what this doesn't mean is I'm going to wake up every morning and beat myself up. That's poor in spirit, absent the filling of the Holy Spirit in Jesus, right? Does this make sense? It's not, it's not okay to be just poor in spirit, like bad self-esteem. That's not what he's talking about. Because at once, in the disciple, at once what should happen is for me to look at myself and go, okay, there's nothing in me that can accomplish the task that God has, has accomplished. There's a rejoicing because he has given me all things that I need in order to do it in him. So it's not a beating myself up. It's a celebration of the full, lasting life that he has given It's a total reliance on the only thing that is powerful enough to bring the kingdom of heaven on the earth, which is the Holy Spirit, which is the filling of Jesus in me. This is a celebration. Everything, listen, you you will not understand the kingdom if you don't start like getting on your head and looking upside down. Everything in the kingdom is upside down. To live, you've got to die. To be first, what do you have to be? Last, right? To lead, you have to follow, serve. You guys are close right everything's upside down so to be poor in spirit isn't to be sad to be poor in spirit isn't to be isn't to be isn't to be broke and and like beating myself up to be poor in spirit is to celebrate the life of Jesus that is in me does that make sense the recognition of my inadequacy must at once meet the adequacy of Jesus which is in me and that causes worship that causes praise that causes thanksgiving it's how we understand uh, 1 Thessalonians 5, 24. It says, faithful is he who called you who will also do it. The beginning of the life of the disciple is recognizing in and of myself I can do nothing, but praise God he has given me his life. That's what dying means. You're not any longer present, but it's his life in you. Paul said it's something a little bit different, that he was crucified with Christ, nevertheless he lives, but not him, but who in him? Who was the question? Christ in Him, right? Come on, guys. It stopped raining, so you're without excuse. So, this is the very beginning of the Beatitudes. Pour in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. You see the gain there? What value would it be of me if I could say, man, there's a lot. And, and I'm sure there's a list. If you just looked at my talents, and it's probably not a very long list, but if you looked at my talents, there's things on the earth which I could accomplish and do. But to what gain? See, to be poor in spirit is to gain the kingdom. And that, and that it's another upside down thing, right? To, to recognize that I have nothing means that in reality, I have the kingdom. Do we just need to, like, start get on our heads? Do we need to try practice, like, beginner gymnastics? And everybody just sit on your heads to understand this? You guys okay? Slap your neighbor, and we'll move on. Go to Philippians chapter 4. We're going to bounce around a little bit here. In Philippians chapter 4, and if you haven't slapped your neighbor, do so. See, y'all are not alive enough yet. Philippians chapter four, he says uh, in verse 11, he says, not that I seek in regard to need. Now listen to these words of Paul. Not that I speak in regard to need, for I have learned in whatever state I am to be what? To be content. I know how to be abased and I know how to abound. Everywhere and in all things I have learned both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and suffer need. It's a strange comment, but, but what it does is it tells us that being poor in spirit is not about the lack or abundance of what I have. Does that make sense? See, a lot of, uh, you will hear that taught, sometimes it being poor in spirit, it's this, it goes to this idea of selling everything I own, right? Well, uh, that's okay, and that's not a bad thing. That's not what poor in spirit is talking about. Paul says that he, learned, he has learned to be content, regardless of the state of his circumstances on the earth. How can he be content? Why? Because he's already analyzed all of it. And whether I'm poor in, on the earth, or whether I'm rich in the earth, whether I'm filled on the earth uh, with, with good food, or whether I'm hungry, my life is not based in the things on the earth, but it is in the kingdom. And so when I recognize the depravity of the things around me, they do not fill me, and I have contentedness because of what does fill me, which is everlasting, and it is of him. See, that's where that statement comes from. It comes from the paradigm shift that says, all of a sudden, the things around me that seek to satisfy me, and look around. Do we not not live in a place that is screaming for your satisfaction? All you gotta do is watch TV for like five minutes. I guarantee you the first commercial is about you. That's the design of marketing. I'm, it's not their fault they're doing a great job they have sold they have they have brilliantly fulfilled the call of marketing, which is for you to believe that you're the most important person on the earth, and that this is what you need in order for you to be satisfied right Let's see. What Paul says is it's not about if I don't have or if I do have. See, I've learned to be content in all things because none of these things satisfy me, right? In Revelation chapter 3, the Lord speaks to a church that did not understand this. And in Revelation chapter 3, he's talking to the church at Laodicea. That's a good pronunciation. And it says in verse 15, it says, I know your works, that you are neither cold nor hot. You, you guys, we, we quote this one all the time, right? You know this one. Uh, I know your works, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish you were cold or hot. So then, because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will vomit you out of my mouth. Verse 17 says this. Now watch, watch where this, this comes from. He says, because you say I am rich, have become wealthy and have need of nothing, and do not know, that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire that you may be rich, and white garments that you may be clothed, that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed, and to anoint your eyes with eye salve that you may see. So what's he say? He says, look, you, you have determined your wealth and your prosperity by that which you could gain. And how does he tell him to repent? He says, "I, I want you to repent. I want you to turn from this, right? I want you to turn from this and I want you to ask me for gold which I have refined. What does Jesus talk about? Gold, silver, and precious stones, right? These are the things that are lasting in the kingdom. These are the works produced by the Holy Spirit in us, right? You guys with me? And he says, and I want you also to ask me for white garments. What does white speak of? Cleansing. It's a cleansed, uh, it's white garments speak of testimony. He says, I want you to ask me for the works which are of me and, and garments which are pure. He says, repent from this, from this desire you have of being filled by the things which are around you, which cannot satisfy you. And ask me for the things which are true and lasting and will not be burned up in judgment. Gold can get really hot and not go anywhere. How quick can wood, hay, and stubble be burned up? Quickly, right? Jesus says, ask me for the works which I do. These are the things which are pure. He says, you've, you've failed to see that you are broken, wretched, and naked. You need me. And I, I believe that the Holy Spirit is speaking to us in this season of the church and saying, will you wake up to the fact that you are broke and wretched, and will you depend on me for the works which I desire to do in you? Please be poor in spirit, because I have life and have it abundantly. So that's poor in spirit, and that's how he starts. And that's important for us to, uh, to consider, because everything else will be based off of that. It's the, it's the building block for everything else. So we move on to the next, uh, the next verse that I want to look at, and that's verse 6. And I know we're, I know we're hopping around, but the principle the is the same. Everything in the Sermon on the Mount, you've got to look up, sitting on your head. Look at, standing on your head. Sorry. Everything is a, a paradigm shift in the kingdom. But I want to look at verse 6, and, and then we're going to be done. It says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for what? For righteousness, for what what's going to happen if you hunger and thirst for righteousness? For they shall be filled. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for, for they shall be filled. Okay, what is hunger and thirst? What does it mean? Like that's just he's obviously drawing a wonderful word picture here. What what does it mean when you're hungry and thirsty? You need okay. You need energy. Your body's saying, I need something to run off of. Yeah. Hunger speaks of a desire, does it not? It 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 comes from uh, the body's you know releasing chemicals going to your brain saying, I need to be filled, I don't have enough, I don't have enough caloric intake, I need energy, I need something to burn in order to sustain this this life, right? But it's a desire. What about thirst? It's a need. What would you say, Ethel? Yeah. What else? What else does thirst awaken in your brain in terms of imagery? Right? Every time I hear it thirsty, like I think of the guy in the Sahara Desert, like on his last limb, you know, <laughs> and the mirage, right? That's, <laughs> that's my picture of thirst. Anybody else? No, okay. All right. So what happens when you're thirsty? What happens in your mouth when you're thirsty? Everybody's like, I'm kind of thirsty right now. (laughs) (laughs) What happens in your mouth? Somebody said it. Yeah, it gets dry, right? Thirst is one of those things. See, I don't know. Hunger hunger is one thing, but but thirst is one of those things for me that I absolutely cannot ignore. Thirst is, I can be hungry and go, all right, and I can get busy and put hunger aside. I cannot do that with thirst. I'm like, I guess I'm like a camel in that sense. You know, I gotta, I gotta get to some water. Now, once I get it, I'm fine for a long time, but I need water. Because thirst, I don't know, your, your body, your, your mouth begins to react and you need desperately, when you're thirsty, you need desperately to hydrate, right? To fill your mouth. Anybody ever been dehydrated? Anybody? Dehydration? Yeah, what does it feel like? You all had really sour faces there. (laughs) And then you took a drink. It's terrible. It It affects every part of your body, right? It affects everything. And Jesus says here that you are to hunger and to thirst for righteousness. Now, both hunger and thirst are those things that just happen once. Has anybody ever just been hungry one time in their life? Or thirsty one time in their life? <laughs> Liar. <laughs> hungry or thirsty, right? What, what happens? Like, you're like, okay, I, I get hungry about 17 times a day. You know, like, and thirsty like 18, right? <laughs> They're repetitive cycles, right? Hunger and thirst are things that continually happen. We continue to go back to a place that fills our our need for food, and we continue to go back to a place that fills our need for water. They are are a continual desire within our physical body, right? It's no accident that Jesus uses this picture, but he says you are to hunger and thirst, painting this picture of, uh, number one, absolute necessity of life, and number two, a repetitive desire in us. So this repetitive desire to be filled, to be sustained by one thing, and he says it's called righteousness. So what does that mean to hunger and thirst for righteousness? What does it mean for my mouth, my spiritual mouth, to be parched uh, of something that only righteousness can fill? What does it mean for me to come back to a place where I desire and thirst righteousness? What does that look like for the disciple, for the one who has said, I'm going to die to follow you? And I am completely completely empty of anything of worth absent your work and absent your filling. What does it mean that we hunger and we thirst for righteousness? Jeremiah chapter 33, I'm going to go through some scriptures quickly, but you, don't, you can go there or just write them down. Jeremiah chapter 33 verse 16 names the Lord, and it names Him, it says that He is our Righteousness. It says that he is our righteousness. So there's a start. We need a hunger and thirst for righteousness. It says the Lord is our righteousness. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, this is a, this is a famous passage. You might know what it says. He became sin who knew no sin that we might become the righteousness of God. So wait a minute. So there's, there's a shift happening here. So the Lord is the one that is righteous, but then he sent him who knew no sin to become sin. He became what we were on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God. Now, is this heresy to say that we can partake in the righteousness of God? Or is it what the scripture says? That the very nature of God, which alone Can be called righteous, right? There none is righteous. None is good but him alone. And it says that he is righteousness, but he became what we were, that we might partake in what he is. That's what what 2 Corinthians 5:21 says. That he became, it says, Hebrews talks about Jesus entering into our state, coming into a life clothed in the flesh, clothed in humanity, and then becoming, listen to this, not becoming the bad things you do, but becoming the very nature of death that required the wrath of God on your behalf. That's what becoming sin means. It means he took on your nature. And the scripture says that that nature is what was bringing forth the wrath of God. Now guys... This is not a soft lamb in the grass picture. Our, who we are, our very nature, is what has attracted the wrath of God. Why? Because he's holy. If I had, a, if I, in, the, in this room, if we had a coffee spill, would you notice it? Maybe. You'd have to look pretty close. Why? Why? If I spill my coffee, well, I don't have any today, but I've already had it. Uh, But if I spill my coffee right here, would you notice it? Maybe. Like some of you, if if the light's right, you might notice it. But what if this room were totally white and I spilled my coffee? You wouldn't just notice it. Like It would be the first thing you saw. You would walk in this room and you'd just, right to the coffee stain, right? Jesus gets more extreme. He doesn't just use, like, dark he says that we it's like red crimson the holiness of god is pure and spotless and perfect you want to know why it's not because we just we messed up a little bit and god's not happy with it it's because anything that is not pure perfect and white is an absolute offense to that which is you slap in my face it's something but not much like, I probably couldn't do much to you. But if anybody watched the Super Bowl, no? Okay, no sports fans in here. <laughs> anyway, all all leading up to the Super Bowl, there was this, uh it was really a focus on this guy named Ray Lewis. And he's officially, I believe, the scariest man on the planet. <laughs> uh, he has muscles that come up to his ears, and it's I, I don't understand how that happens, but And he comes out before every game and starts screaming and hollering. I mean, it's it's terrifying, right? Right, so you slap me in the face, it's something, but you slap that man. (laughs) Why? It's not because the slap was different. Sin is sin. It is crimson. It's in reference to what? Sin in reference to good behavior, is not that big of a deal. Sin in reference to holiness, to pure, spotless holiness, is a big deal. And think about what he became. That which is white clothed himself in crimson. Guys, he knew no sin. When Jesus is about to when Jesus is about to be crucified, he says, I'm going to leave because the prince of the power of the air is coming and he has nothing in common with me. So Jesus didn't, it's not like he hung out with sin but just didn't, wasn't really good friends, you know. He didn't know it. He is holy. And he became that which is totally an affront to his father. He became the stain On our behalf, that we might partake in what he was and is, his righteousness. You get that. That which in you brought the wrath of God was traded for what brings the delight of God. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, it says that he became for us the righteousness of God. So, what does it look like for us to hunger and thirst for righteousness? What does he say is the result? You'll be what? Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for you will be satisfied, for you will be filled, right? Because there's something that happens in a disciple. There's a shift that takes place when you die and the life of Christ comes in you and you are regenerated, reborn, right, into the spirit of life, into the kingdom of heaven where you have redemption. There's only one thing that really, really, really satisfies you, and that is the very nature of God. That is righteousness itself, Christ himself. See, you are now wired to thirst and hunger for things which are eternal. You can mill about all day long on the earth and try to satisfy what you hunger for, but it will be in vain and you will end up empty and broke every time. Because as the believer, as one washed in the blood, you are only going to be filled by one thing, and that is Him. But here's the good news, right? He doesn't just say hunger and thirst, and there's a chance that I'll fill you, right? He doesn't just say cry out to me, hunger and thirst, and there, and, and then maybe you'll be satisfied, right? He says if you hunger and thirst, if it is me that you desire, if I am what you forsake all others for and you hunger and thirst after me, right? And it's the hunger and thirst meaning like this continual every day. My satisfaction is only in him. If that is true, then you'll be filled. It's not a question. He doesn't say if you hunger and thirst for righteousness and do your quiet time every day, then I'll have a conversation with you about satisfying the deepest desires of your life. He says, hunger and thirst for me and I'll fill you. Because the promise over us is that he's going to fill us with a river that springs forth continually, right? Living water. We're never going to thirst again. And as disciples, we should have a a perspective that is not just of the earth, but is an eternal perspective. See, that's the, that is the, uh, that's the, the joke about marketing. That's the joke about what is being given to you as, uh, as opportunity for filling, is that it, it may satisfy, but it'll satisfy for a moment. Will your job quench your desire for righteousness in eternity? Will the amount of money you make quench what you are, the eternal perspective? Will it satisfy beyond what you're doing on the earth right now? See, that's the game. As disciples, we've checked out of the eternal perspective. We've checked out of the thing that says we are are members of eternity, right? Which you are. As partakers in the kingdom, clothed in the blood of Jesus, listen, we exist forever, praise God. That's what we were designed to do. But if all your perspective does is takes out eternity and looks now, no wonder. No wonder you seek to satisfy yourselves with the things of the earth, because that's all you look at is the earth. And for believers, look, we're no different. We just try to satisfy ourselves with the things that are on the good Christian list. If I'll just do the list of the things that the good Christian does, if I just behave rightly and do the list, then that'll somehow satisfy me. That is void of an eternal perspective. And he says to the church, he says, repent, ask me for the things which satisfy. Do you hunger and thirst for the very nature and presence of God? Are you satisfied on a daily basis by him or by something else? And I'm not doing that cliche pastor thing where we ask the hard question at the end, right? I'm, but seriously. And, and this is, I'm not trying to pull the rug out from you guys, but this is a serious conversation. If, if what satisfies you is not righteousness, are you a disciple? That's a hard question. If, you're, if your belly is full by the things of the earth and your mouth is not dry because of what you taste and partake in and the things of the earth, I would ask, are you a disciple? Because you are wired and give a new life to hunger and thirst for one thing which satisfies. See, because as a believer, as a true disciple, if you are attempting to be filled by things that are not of the kingdom, then you are miserable. Does that make sense? Because there's only one thing that satisfies us, and that's his life. That's him. So this was the easy part of the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, it gets much more difficult. That's good news. I say that for your encouragement. Uh, I was going to speak to you about one more thing, um, In verse 8, it says, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. And I'm not going to spend much time on this. I just want to point you to a couple passages. In 2 Chronicles, verse 16, it says, The eyes of the Lord are wandering to and fro for those who have a pure heart that he might show himself strong. And it says that those who have a pure heart see God. Well, this is a commentary off of what we just said. See, everything in the Sermon on the Mount is is. It fits together. These are not separate rules for life, right? This all fits together. This purity and heart. He's talking about a forsaking of all things that satisfy, absent Him. Forsaking of all the emptiness of the earth and being satisfied by Him. And this is the this is man. We can be filled and we can see God. I wanted you to hear those things this morning. I think sometimes we get in the mentality that it's like if I can just if I can just position myself right, if I can just worship right, and and in that. Worship, right? If Blake will just play the right songs, because heaven knows the guy at the last place I was would not play the right songs for me to get into the presence of God. If Kendall would stop teaching these awful messages, I would certainly be able to enter the presence of God, right? See, that's, that's not what he says. He says, if you hunger and thirst for righteousness, you're filled. If your heart is pure, what does that speak of? What is a pure heart? Not, right, it's not giving itself to something that defiles. Right, it's a heart is is speaks of love and passion. Right, a heart's pursuit. Right, is what he's talking about. That there's purity in the pursuit. I'm, I purely seek after righteousness. Right, and the gain of that is that I see God. So, as a disciple, you are you are made to be filled by Him. To hear him and to see him. Isn't that a good promise? Yeah, this is good news, guys. For people that have to be poor in spirit, it is good news that he fills us. For people that have to say, There is in me nothing that is worthy, it is good news that he says, But let me just take you right over here because when you're following me, I'm gonna fill you up and you're gonna see me and you're gonna walk with me, right? This is good news. We're not orphaned without life. He said, let me take your life that you might have mine and we might eternally walk together. This is great news for the believer. And then he goes down here in verse 10 and this is where I believe we've said, okay, all the other ones were okay, but this one is hard. (laughs) He elaborates. It's the only one he elaborates on. He says, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake for those of the kingdom of heaven. And then he continues in that same vain and he says, blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad for great is your reward in heaven so that they persecuted the prophets, uh, sorry, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. And I'm not going to elaborate on that. That is next week and that is, that is a, carries a lot of weight. Uh, what, is it, what does it mean to be persecuted for righteousness' sake? And then he says, he takes it over here and he says, there's persecution, but then there's great reward. I want to talk about tangible reward in the kingdom. I want to talk about what we were designed to be filled by, righteousness. But what does that mean? When righteousness is our, is our life, when we forsake the earth in the pursuit of heaven, what is the reward? It's a beautiful, beautiful picture. And that's what I want to look at next week.